Good to be with you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Kevin Twitt. I uh, am the RUF campus minister, which is a, uh, the denominational um, campus ministry at Belmont. I know many of you all. Um, our family actually was part of uh, City Church, even going back to the very first uh, public worship service. And uh, it's always a great treat to be back here. Um, so we've got this parable. We've got this parable. Uh, the first of Jesus' parables. And I, I want to say a few things, and then we'll pray, and then we'll kind of dig into this. The, the first is this. When you come to the parables, it's important to understand that they are not just illustrations. They're not like Aesop's fables, where they just kind of have one central point. Uh, a lot of Bible scholars in the 20th century had kind of developed this idea that the, that the parables basically have one main point. You need to figure out what it is. And in some ways, that's a response to sort of the wild kind of allegorical interpretations that had dominated the way people saw the parables for so many years. Um, but, but I really think um, that, that, that that's not, either of those are the way to look at the parables. And I, I, I want to just say something uh, about this before we dig into this parable. Uh, there's a guy named Kenneth Bailey, who actually I've been privileged to twice sit under like full day seminars with him about the parables. He's a really important guy when it comes to understanding the parables. He basically spent his entire career uh, working in the Middle East. He taught in Damascus uh, there in Syria. He taught in Lebanon. Uh, and he did a lot of work telling parables to Middle Eastern peasants who basically still live very much like the people in Jesus' own day. And, and, what, and he kind of had this theory that maybe Westerners miss a lot of what the parables are about. One of the reasons is because uh, he's one of the few scholars that reads ancient Aramaic and ancient Syriac. And so he's able to read some of the early um, interpretations of the parables by other Semitic peoples who are much closer uh, culturally to the parables than we are, okay? And so he begins to, to do this work. And one of the things that he begins to, to realize is that parables, particularly when you understand them in a story culture like the Middle East is, uh, are not just little illustrations or little Aesop's parables. That, this is what he says about them that I think is so interesting. He says that a parable is an extended metaphor and as such is not a delivery system for an idea but a house in which the reader or the hearer is invited to take up residence. We are urged by the parable to look on the world through the windows of that residence. Notice what he's saying. He's like, the point of a parable is not just to be an illustration, but to actually give you an interpretive world to live in, to try to look through it to the, to the world around us. I think that makes a lot of sense when you look at a parable like this. Because what Jesus is asking these people to understand is something that really kind of goes way over their head. And, and it's not that, that Jesus doesn't want them to understand it. I mean, he does explain it to them when they ask. And it's recorded actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, both the parable and his explanation. So the early church thought this was an important parable and also thought the interpretation was important. Uh, but, but I think so often we, we fail to see it as this imaginative world that is trying to, if, if you will, baptize our imagination. 
particularly with regard to what is the kingdom of God all about. And one of the things that Kenneth Bailey uh, discovered in working with parables and with these Middle Eastern peasants was that often the parable will have a detail that is just outrageous, even preposterous, and at times even laugh out loud funny to the people who hear it. And that often that is a clue as to really the teaching the parable is driving at. And do you know what it is in this one? It's actually the last little bit of it. The, the yield, 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold, if you tell that story to Middle Eastern farmers in the first century, they will laugh out loud at you because nobody gets that kind of yield before modern agricultural farming methods. Now, I, I know a lot of you have heard this story as kind of a scary story about make sure you're not one of the bad kinds of soil, right? But I submit to you that actually that really misses the point of this parable. That, that really what, what Kenneth Bailey is asking us to see is try to let this parable baptize your imagination about the kingdom. Because the kingdom is a really difficult thing to understand. Not just because it seems to be confusing, but it goes so against our expectations. And, and, and it takes a lot for us to begin to grasp it. You know, it's not unlike what Tolkien was doing with The Lord of the Rings. Many of you probably have read or at least seen the movies. Maybe you're getting excited about the new uh, series. I think actually during the halftime show at some point uh, today, if you manage to watch all the sports, you're going to see the first trailer for the new Lord of the Rings uh, series that's coming out, right? Uh, I know some of you probably are much more excited about that than about the, uh, the Super Bowl itself. That's okay. Well, uh, think about Tolkien. Tolkien was actually, you know, an Oxford professor. And he was quite concerned about the modern world, many aspects of the modern world that he thought were dehumanizing. And he could have written learned books about that that nobody would have read. But instead, he creates an imaginative world to, as it were, baptize our imagination. As a matter of fact, there are places where he doesn't even translate the elvish or the dark speech of Mordor because he said there really are some things that you can't even say in modern English. You have to actually create a whole entire different world for people even to begin to imagine what it means to be truly human and what it means to have honor and these sorts of things. I remember one time coming back from London. I was on a mission trip with some of our college students years ago, and I was flying back from that trip, and I was reading The Lord of the Rings, and I'd read it before. I've read it numerous times. But this particular time, I'm sitting in the middle of like the five seats in the middle, you know, where nobody wants to be, and I'm right there in the middle, and I'm reading this, and I've got to the end where Aragon is now being uh, crowned as the king. And, and I remember I'm just weeping and I'm wondering like what these strangers sitting on either side of me are probably wondering what in the world is going on with this guy. And, and I began to wonder what's going on with me. How is it, how is it that Tolkien was able to stir in me longing for a king, the king who is the, has the hands of a healer and who bears the sword that was broken that's now been reforged an image of justice. He's going to bring healing and he's going to make all things right. And I'm just weeping and I'm thinking, like, what does it mean to be an American? It means we don't have a king. 
Nobody can tell us what to do. But you see, when we come in here, we realize that's not what we were made for. We're going to confess uh, a little later the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, right? What brings you comfort that I'm not my own, that I don't get to, nor do I have to, make up the meaning for which I was made? It's so contrary. It, it takes a lot of a lot of imagination, baptized imagination, to begin to, to live into a story that is so countercultural like that. And that's what Jesus is trying to do with this parable. So let me pray, and then we're going we're gonna to dig into it. Lord, we do thank you that Jesus, oh, he's so patient to teach us, and he's so intentional. And we pray, Lord, even now that you would send your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I said, this is an important parable. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include this parable. It's obviously important to Jesus and the early church. But what's interesting, I don't know if a lot of people realize this, Jesus does not use parables from the very beginning of his ministry. Now, we've been going through the gospel of Mark, right? And Mark is the gospel that just, things just move along quick, quick, right? We're in chapter four when the parables start. Chapter four, right? Um, there's a, a guy who's written some really great stuff on the parables, Robert Capon, and he talks about this. I think this is really helpful to understand. Again, parables were not at the beginning of Jesus' miracle, miracle, or of, uh, his ministry. Here we are in chapter four, and he says this, by the time Mark introduces the parable of the sower, He's already, in the Gospel of Mark, established Jesus not only as a wonder-working, demon-exercising claimant to the title of Messiah, but also as a Sabbath-breaking upstart with a dangerous sense of his own authority. As somebody, in other words, who is neither interested in nor palatable to the religious sensibilities of expert Messiah watchers. That's right. Like at this point, Jesus uh, has done all kinds of things that are confusing the heck out of people and making some people really upset. And you need to understand that parables are a way Jesus teaches people and challenges the religious leaders without giving him, them clear, unambiguous reason to put him to death. See, what you've seen in these first chapters of, of Mark is that Jesus is revealing himself right from the beginning. He's very clear who he is and what he's come to do, but he also is regularly telling people, hey, don't tell anybody what I just did. Right? He tells the demons, he tells people, and you're like, what? Does he want people to know or does he not want people to know? And the answer is yes. Yes. And even before this parable, he said a number of things in sort of cryptic parabolic ways, like I'll make you fishers of men. What does that mean? Right? Why? Why? Again, consider what Robert Capon has to say. He says, in resorting so often to parables, Jesus' main point was that any understanding of the kingdom his hearers could come up with would be a misunderstanding. Mention Messiah to them, and they would picture a king on horseback, not a carpenter on a cross. Mention forgiveness. And they would start setting up rules about when it ran out. From Jesus' point of view, the sooner their misguided minds had the props knocked out from under them, the better. After all, 
They're yammer on about how God should or shouldn't run his own operation, getting them to just stand there with their eyes popped and their mouths shut would be a giant step forward. It's almost like Jesus is saying to himself, these people are so clueless about what I'm talking about. Maybe I should just lean in and push into that even more because my kingdom is so completely different than what they expect that if they think of it as just a better version of what they already have, they're going to completely miss the point. And so I better make sure that when I talk about the kingdom, it just completely turns upside down everything they think about and everything they've expected. The problem is so many of us have heard this parable so many times, and I would say with the wrong emphasis, that I think we look down our nose sometimes at the disciples. We're like, it seems pretty clear. Like, why didn't they get the point of this parable, right? How could they be so dense? But to be fair, Jesus launches into this story with no explanation of context. It's obviously not just a story about a farmer, but neither is it really clear what he's talking about. And later when they ask him about his teaching in parables, he quotes this passage from Isaiah that's really rather perplexing, isn't it? Look at verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is parables. So that, and then he quotes Isaiah, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And you're like, what? Like, what does that even mean? Does he want people to understand and repent or not? Well, of course he does. He doesn't hide the explanation from them. As a matter of fact, it's written down in three of the Gospels. But maybe, maybe what's going on here is Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is a mystery. But if you're beginning to understand that you don't get it, then the parables help you. If you think you get it, then the parables really go over your head. Maybe, again, part of the point is that the kingdom of God is not a better version of what you already have. It's something that turns everything upside down. And I'll just say, little parentheses here, looking around today, at how many Christians seem to equate the way of the kingdom with power and influence, maybe we still need a baptism of our imagination. So let's dig into the parable itself. Who's the sower? I think right from the beginning, many people assume that the sower is Jesus and that this is a parable about Jesus' preaching and thus it's about when the church preaches. And, and many of us have heard the parable explained that way. But what if the first point that we think we understand is actually wrong? Who is the sower? Is it Jesus or is it perhaps the Father? Now consider this. Jesus is the one who described his own ministry as being like a seed that had to die and be buried to bear fruit. This is John 12. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What if Jesus 
is not the sower. What if Jesus is the seed? Now, if that's true, then, then one of the points of the parable, which would have been pretty perplexing and probably infuriating to a lot of the Jewish leaders, was that God is sowing everywhere. God is sowing everywhere. In other words, the Jews do not have exclusive rights to God. See, Jesus introduces this parable into a context where the Jewish leaders think that they have the corner of the market on a relationship with God. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't say that the seed is sown only among the Jews. He tells the story in a way that embraces everyone. These four categories embrace every possible response to Jesus and the kingdom. Consider his use as well of the seed as the central image in the parable. What is it? What, why? What, it's not the first time that Jesus talks about the kingdom being like a seed. There's that place where he says the, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest seed, but then it becomes the biggest plant in the garden. See, one thing that's really true about seeds is they are deceptively small and seemingly unimportant. If we didn't have the experience of seeing growth come out of them, we would never imagine that an oak tree would come from an acorn. If you gave a child who knew nothing an acorn and said, what do you think this is and what do you think it will be? They would not guess that it would be this towering tree one day. And I would say such is the nature of the kingdom of God. Again, an important reminder in our day when so many are looking for power and lusting after influence, the kingdom of God is like a seed. Jesus is actually more like a seed that looks insignificant than a well-orchestrated political campaign. I mean, think about it. He spent most of his time in obscure places with people who weren't very impressive. And eventually he's killed like a common criminal and his followers scatter. He's the stone that the builders rejected. You know, that is the most quoted Old Testament passage by the New Testament. It's like the New Testament writers, as they're reflecting on Jesus, the main thing they think of is we completely missed it. The stone that the builders rejected has become what? The chief cornerstone. And as Isaiah 53 predicted, there was nothing about him that attracted people. In fact, most people were pretty turned off by him. But what we see in this parable is seeds may seem very insignificant, but they actually have power. They begin working right away. Even the seed that falls in the rocky soil, like it starts growing right away. And you know, if, if, if you, um, you know, kids, you probably know this, that if the birds eat the seeds, eventually the seeds come out of the birds and often grow anyway, right? Seeds have this power. But as Jesus shows us in this parable, the seeds take root and grow in a very hostile environment. As Jesus said in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and no one snatch, will snatch them out of my hand. But that is the reality for those who follow Jesus. I, I was thinking of it as we sang that hymn, we will feast. We will feast. But as we go through that song, there's all kinds of obstacles to that, aren't there? Both outside and inside, right? So the seeds seem insignificant. They have actual power, 
and they grow in a hostile environment, such is the kingdom of God. And get this, the yield they produce, the fruit they produce is laugh out loud ridiculous. Laugh out loud ridiculous. Again, like I said, Kenneth Bailey points out that no Middle Eastern peasant would think you could have 30, 60, 100 fold yield from seeds that you plant. That's insane. But that's the point. That's the point. See, this is a story about the kingdom advancing in spite of all kinds of obstacles, and we need to hear it. It should give us hope about ourselves, our neighbors, our world. You know, I think about this when I think about City Church, and I think about the history of City Church, right? I, listen, guys, I've heard more predictions about the impending death of City Church than any church in this city. I'm just telling you, you probably have too. But as Mark Train actually didn't say, but he's quoted as saying, news of my impending death has been greatly exaggerated, right? For those of you who've been here for years, you know the stories. I'll just tell you one. First year of the church, the senior pastor gets a brain tumor. I mean, that's not how you, you know, write the script when you're planting a church, right? But what had happened it led to this guy, George Grant, coming up and filling in. I remember George had been down at, at uh, Christ Community with me, and he was, he was really happy to actually get to pastor actual people and come up and do, you know, meet with people and whatnot, and devoted, I think, about half his time. And what happened with that? Well, it stirred up his vision for being a church planner, and now we have Parish Pres down in Franklin. And then Parish Pres plants a church, and now we have Cornerstone. And God is not done yet. What looked like death, God brought life that no one would have imagined. It's really like that, that book, that kid's book. If you give a mouse a cookie, right? Did you know that was a parable about the kingdom? I think it is, right? It's a story about the unstoppable, ever-advancing kingdom of God. And here's the thing. When you get your heart bolstered by this kind of confidence... It changes the way you interact with people. Some of you might have seen um, Stephen Colbert's uh, interaction with Dua Lipa, right? Where she asks him, if you haven't seen it, you should, you should Google it and watch it. She asks him about his faith and about comedy and about kind of what he does, his vocation. And he gives this incredible response. But you know what's, what also happened is a bunch of Christians started attacking his response, saying that it was insufficient witness for the kingdom of God because he didn't like tell her she needed to repent and believe the gospel. He didn't quote unquote close the sale, right? They seem to think that it's not actually a good witness unless you close the sale. And I remembered the words of one of my favorite seminary professors, David, I don't know if you ever had Seth Dearness um, or if he'd passed away before you got there, but he taught this class in hospital counseling. And you know, he would always like send us out Basically, to the floor there at Missouri Baptist, we just have a list of names and a condition and the room number and their age. And we wouldn't know anything about them. And he would always send us out and say this, guys, just try to make it easier for the next Christian they meet. Just try to make it easier for the next Christian they meet. And I remember there was one guy in my class who every week he was getting more and more frustrated that he hadn't been able to close the sale with anybody and finally the very last week, you know, we would go, we would meet patients, then we'd come back and we'd debrief, right? 
He comes back, he slumps down in his chair, and he's like, guys, I just shared the gospel with somebody, and I feel terrible about it. We're like, what? Well, basically, like every week, he was feeling so frustrated that he hadn't done what he's supposed to do as a good Christian. He hadn't shared the gospel and, and made somebody pray with him. So finally, like the last guy that he saw, who's basically just captive, laying in his bed, he just pressed, pressed on through. And even as he's doing it, he's feeling like this is so wrong. But he's so driven by this sense that, I'm, that, that God needs me to do this, to like just run, you know, run over this poor guy. Listen, why, why, did, why did Seth Dearness encourage us to, to, to just be, just to hope that we could make it less difficult for the next Christian that people met? It's because he had a quiet confidence that God was at work. He believed what Paul said to the Corinthians. Some of us plant, some of us water, but God gives the growth. And we need that confidence in God today. See, rather than being a scary story about making sure you're the right kind of soil, as if you were in control of that anyway. This is actually a tremendously encouraging story about the growth of the kingdom in spite of the obstacles and the hostility. Why do we turn these encouraging stories into scary stories? I don't know. Maybe some of y'all have been raised in churches where they took the incredible encouraging story about how God is going, Jesus is going to return one day and make all things right, and it gets turned into a scary story about being left behind. We just do this all the time. This is not a scary story. But the response does matter. It does matter. The issue of our response to the work of the kingdom is here as well, and this is what I'm going to close with. You know, by this point in Jesus' ministry, he's already received quite a lot of pushback and criticism and in telling this parable, Jesus is saying, this is to be expected because the kingdom of God does not come in the way that people expect. And at times it can seem downright threatening and provoke real hostility. I remember Rosemary Miller, great woman of God, used to say, whenever we pray that prayer that we just prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Do you understand that what you're really praying is, Lord, dismantle my kingdom? Maybe you won't pray it so glibly next time, right? But it takes a real baptism of the imagination to want that, to long for that. God's kingdom is coming in ways that are unexpected, but which often seem downright threatening and provoke real hostility. But don't miss the point. God's work will move forward. As Tertullian, early church father, said about the persecution of the early church, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. And the question for us is, can we trust God enough to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, as Francis Schaeffer once said? As we come to this table... This is another way that God is trying to baptize our imagination and teach us about the kingdom. And guys, we need all the help we can get. <laughs> we need the gospel preached in a picture. We need to enter into this imaginative world where God on the throne is a good thing and we welcome it and we long for it. Again, the kingdom of God is not just a better version of what we already have. It's something that turns everything upside down. So let me pray and then we're going to come to the table. Lord, we do thank you that your kingdom is unstoppable and unshakable. And yet, Lord, we confess that that's a little frightening. 
in some ways, we don't know what to do with that. We don't know what it's like to, to live in ways that we're not in control of. So Lord, help us, not just to repent, but help us to long for your kingdom come. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.